BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Incomparable, number 609, April 2022. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host most of the time, Jason Snell. In this episode, we're going to be opening up the old movie club. Old movie club. And talking about <laughs> two films. David, you okay? It's hard. It's harder than it looks. He's got Ooh. some lutz in his throat. Ooh, yeah, I got I got a lutz caught in there. We're, we're gonna we're <clears> gonna. Right, gonna George, George McCready is joining the podcast now. Hi, George. <laughs> we are. Hi. We're gonna Hello, take it Phil. back to uh, two films that are about. You know, yeah, I've had a couple of friends involved in the federal government, and I've I've received calls about their uh, patriotism. One of the questions that I always like that makes me want to giggle out loud, but I don't do it because the FBI doesn't appreciate that is: Has your friend ever uh, ever advocated for the violent overthrow of the United States government? And I say, no, friend. Who would do that? And the answer is Burt Lancaster, apparently. Burt Lancaster (laughs) and sort of Frank Sinatra in the two movies that we're going to be discussing suddenly from 1954 and Seven Days in May from 1964. Uh, Let me introduce Philip Michaels, who you just heard, who picks these movies for us. Phil, any reason why the overthrow of the United States government was... (laughs) On your mind? No, none, none whatsoever. I can't think of anything. Just hope we're going to do a lot of chopping tonight, Jason. A lot of chopping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I no, yeah, no reason, no reason. I think you sent me this no. uh, suggestion last year. In fact, yes, but... yeah. Well, it, it's been it's been on the list for a while. So for for some reason, it's just been on my mind. I guess it uh, kind of free floating things. And, and about... Phil, if you should get a job with the federal government, I will have to say that he does not advocate for the violent overthrow of the federal government. You'd be lying. But he does advocate <laughs> for films about the violent overthrow yeah, exactly. of the U.S. government. So that's how you have to take that. Let me introduce exactly. uh, our uh, other panelists who have joined us to discuss these old movies. As you might expect, Shelley Brisbane, the host of a, of a podcast that whose name I always get wrong. It's Lions, Towers, and Shields on The Incomparable is here. Hi, Shelley. Hello. I won the Silver Star. Oh, did you now? <laughs> Let me hear. That means yeah, you're better, a killer. Repeat that several times during the during the I podcast. I killed seventeen Japanese people or twenty-seven Germans. It doesn't really matter. It which, doesn't but matter. I won. I won the Silver Star. Uh, David J. Lore is also here. Hello. Hi. I I just want to say, here's a rain check. Put it away somewhere safe and dry so you don't lose it. And uh, here's a guy who maybe we'll send down to the town to check out on 
people. Oh no, that's a bit terrible job for Moises Chuyan. Hello. <laughs> like like Paul Freeze, I will go to the haunted mansion. <laughs> to look for a moose and squirrel. Uh so uh Phil. Yes. Why 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 did you pick these movies? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that 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 seems like a more loaded question than I was uh, hoping for. So just Phil, just, Phil just really loves misogyny in cinema. That's I, I that's actually, one of his favorite things. I actually do like suddenly. I think suddenly um, is an interesting picture. I like the fact that it's it's Frank Sinatra. Um, well, playing against the type that he played in movies, maybe not so much uh, in real life, um, but. Um, uh, I, and the fact that this was the first movie he made after winning the Oscar, I believe. So I always thought that yeah. was an interesting uh, uh, career trajectory that, yeah, well, now that I'm back on top of the world and the toast of Hollywood, time to make a movie where I'm killing the president. Yep. So that that was uh, that I, that suddenly has always been one of those. Um, off the beaten path kind of movies because as you might as you might imagine it falls out of circulation quite a bit um, and um, I needed something to go with it and Seven Days in May seemed thematically uh, thematically uh, uh, a, a pea in the same pod as it were yeah I think so I mean we're we are disco- discovering the uh, the the ways ways that you can disrupt the federal government in black and white that's what these mm-hmm. films are I mean suddenly is one of those films that for years my dad was like you have to see this movie this movie is amazing and when we finally found it when it finally came out on vhs at some point and he saw it in a bargain bin he's like oh we're getting this and you said no dad i want a gun (laughs) (laughs) well you know um it gave me ideas no 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 but no it, it really is a good movie it is a tight taut nasty little noirish oh, film it, it is very tight and i've always it, it, people know philip michaels he likes his he likes his quick movies he likes <laughs> yes, it that's right yeah he loves film especially as little of it as possible <laughs> especially if i can knock it off in one night uh this is so let's let's yeah we'll, well let's dive into suddenly uh yeah frank sinatra uh he comes to so okay this movie starts with of course, the uh, say, friend, how do you get to Three Rivers? Also, <laughs> is this the town that arms its children? Because yeah. <laughs> there's a kid and and uh, he, like he wants a gun. It's Pidge. All all it takes is a good kid with a gun. It's so we, we, all it yes, takes. We, we establish in the the opening of the movie that this is a this is a one horse fly spec one stoplight <laughs> town yep. that you you drive through on the way to somewhere else yep. is is what um what the it's, motorist establishes early on it's in the gold rush country of california and therefore it's essentially where i grew up and all of yep. those other things apply Thought thought yep. you might appreciate that. <laughs> you drive into suddenly, and mm-hmm. suddenly you're somewhere else. And uh, yes, as Jason says, boy, the children really have a weird relationship with firearms yeah. in this town. A little bit. Uh, oh. This is this is so the the idea here is that. A in, a in an amusing scene where the telegram guy <laughs> runs across town to find the sheriff. Um, and then, and then basically takes, says, we have to go back to the telegraph office so that you can read this thing. Um, they are informed that the president of the United States will be stopping in suddenly, not to see suddenly, but to no. transfer to a car to take him to like a ranch where there's a 
presumably like a wealthy benefactor or something. I don't know. It doesn't yes. really matter. This was, this was back in the Eisenhower days when the, the president did the president did uh, manly things outdoors and, and like golfing and fishing and uh, and, and that sort of <laughs> don't stuff. Don't forget uh, splitting wood. That and was split, chop, chopping wood, chopping clearing wood. brush. And, clearing you know, brush. basically the president. Chopping has a different meaning in suddenly, though. <laughs> <laughs> the yes. president could stop off the train and suddenly say, this town sucks and everyone in it's a moron and it would cost him like 12 votes is basically the right. uh who cares the, the the thing we get from 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 the movie so oh boy it's going to be one of those let's put on a show let's impress uh, the president with how great our town is note that doesn't happen you've got to be you got to keep it on the down low you got to limit as many people uh, a few people as possible need to know that this is happening uh, but the sheriff is going to know a bunch of secret service guys are going to come the now state troopers are flooding into town but, with uh, with uh, cars but uh, in a an amazing coincidence. Mm-hmm. The uh, the sheriff's uh, w- the would be girlfriend, who is a war widow, yes, uh, who is the mother of the kid who just wants to shoot guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, her dad, who lives in the town, is a former Secret Service agent, and so uh, that's an interesting connection that sort of uh, happens coincidentally anyway and also lives in the house with the perfect view best of the view railway station of the railway station exactly right uh, like, we, he moved, like he moved to town and said give me the house that's right by the railway station i never want yeah. to sleep so, at all yeah that's right well it's the it's the most affordable house in town because you just got trains <laughs> blasting through not stopping because who cares mm-hmm. um the so so this all leads to that moment so we, we meet these characters and we know he's sweet on the the lady but she doesn't you know she doesn't want him to take her to church or anything like that because she's still mourning her husband he's like you got to get over it uh and date me and she's like mm, no i'm not over it uh and uh oh the hey, team Quit trying to buy my son a gun, please. Yeah, yeah, and the TV is broken <laughs> anyway. So there's a lot of things going on here, but the the real moment that this that this uh, movie uh, pivots is we've seen the Secret Service men get there and they're setting up their security cordon. And then there's a knock on the door of the house on the hill and it's Frank Sinatra and a couple of guys. And they say, we're with the FBI. You don't know this, but the president's coming to town and we need to secure this. And they're like, oh, wow, that's great, Mr. Federal Agent. He's like, yeah, okay, uh, let's get set up in here. And then there's one of those like, hey, wait a minute. Oh, we shot we shot a guy because dun, 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 the FBI, this guy is not with the FBI and it wouldn't be any student of the federal government would know it's the secret service that's in charge of protecting the president not the fbi and it's all a lie because frank sinatra isn't there to protect the president he's there to assassinate the president <gasps> gasp is nobody surprised yeah. that frank sinatra is <laughs> a cold-blooded killer come on no, I, no, i'm surprised no. I mean, totally this, was this his only explicitly bad guy role as trivia sections all over the Internet like to tell us um, <laughs> whether, whether that's true or not? It feels like it's one of the few times he's distinctly supposed to be bad. Oh, yeah. It, no, it was not his counting. First, you know, it was his first actual villain role. Right. So, and I don't know that he did another like fully villainous role. He played tough guys. He played he tough played, Rome, he played some but, scumbags. He played drug addicts, various things. Yeah. But he didn't really play out and out villains. The closest yeah. would be Man with the Golden Arm, where right. he plays a drug addict. But he's he's the drug addict you root for. He's the drug I addict mean, with the I heart guess. of gold and, and and the arm of gold too. Is the title? It's yeah. the yeah. worst Bond film. 
Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Th- is. So, I mean, this one, his performance is, um, I mean, when you learn more about what he was like as a person, uh, maybe maybe a bit, a bit closer to the real Frank Sinatra <laughs> than the screen persona Frank Sinatra yes. uh, that everybody really got acquainted with. And and somebody and somebody seeing this who has seen all of his other stuff uh, might be a bit surprised. Uh, but for me, it's I hadn't seen it in a while. And it was a nice uh, return to seeing Frank Sinatra, not just do the Frank Sinatra thing, but do yeah. the I mean, Frank Sinatra. There, thing. there are there know. are other movies where he is not doing the Frank Sinatra thing. And I grudgingly admit that he can be a good actor. See how grudging I am. Uh, oh, but yeah. yeah, this is the out and out. I, I wouldn't say this is my favorite or that it, this is his best role. He's good in this. He's, he's interesting. And in I think the writing does him credit, too. Uh, but there, there are plenty of other roles where he's like Man with a Golden Arm, where he's doing dramatical stuff. Some came running is good, but I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'll, I'll say this: I, uh, I, I like how much I hate Frank Sinatra and Sterling Hayden equally in this movie. Oh my God, Sterling Hayden! <laughs> I want to slap him. Stop being such a woman, Shelley. And he doesn't always do that. He, he, he cannot. He can do. He can act without doing that. And he chose. He chose badness he just did. i i think sterling hayden looked at the script and looked at the production and and said mailing this one in boys yeah. doing the doing the the john square job johnny part. square job that, that is exactly yeah. who he is i think yeah i think sinatra is good in this um he is he is villainous but he's also um like i, I really love that it's like the banality of evil like he he mm. He, I won the silver star and you're like, you're talking it up, but yeah, he keeps changing his story and, and what Sterling Hayden ends up saying to him is, you know, you just, you just are good at killing. You're, you aren't a hero. You're just a killer. And it's, it's, it's really good. Cause Sinatra is like, he's, he's kind of an egomaniac. Um, he's, he's, he's a narcissist. He is convinced that everybody owes him something. Um, and in the end he is just getting paid to kill the president and then run off to South America. He hasn't really thought it through so much as one of his, uh, his co-conspirators points out. It's like, well, why don't we just take, we got half up front. Let's just take that money and run. And he's like, no, 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 no. We got to stay here. And it's just, I, I like, I like the character in the performance because he is so like de- delusional. There's a, there's a real one act play feel to this movie. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. and I really like that, that he's not just a bad guy. He's like a delusional, um, you know, he's got his moments, but he's also he, really he messed likes up. It. Yeah. Yeah. But I the like thing that, that the writing does well is even in a short little movie like this, Sterling Hayden spends a lot of time trying to find out what Sinatra's weakness is so that he can get the advantage. And it takes him a few tries to Shelley, get to it. His weakness is electricity. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> well, there you go. But it takes him a few tries to sort of get to like, what is the point? What is the thing that's going to yeah. prove that he's a psycho or whatever? And, and, and the script does a good job of giving Sterling Hayden a couple of tries because despite his overacting, the character is pretty smart. And it, it actually one of the, the interesting thing about Sterling Hayden, it, the character, just to go back, is that like when they tell him the president is coming, he's the sort of small town sheriff. But Hayden is like on it like right yeah. away. He's like, got to do this and this and this. Yeah. And so you, he's set up as a smart guy, but he's annoying to watch. 
Yeah, no, he he knows exactly what to do and he takes it seriously. It's not one of those gulp, you know, kind of moments. He's like, all right, here's what we're gonna do. He's very businesslike. He's not a he's not a chump of a small town sheriff. He know he's like, okay, I have trained my whole life for this moment. I'm gonna do it right, <laughs> and uh, and he puts it all together. But one of the things he has to do, obviously, is they need to go uh, go check the uh, the house in the hill, and um and then he doesn't return, so they send some other people up there. It goes. It goes really badly. Uh, also, the TV is broken, so the TV repairman comes. That also goes really badly. And that guy, the TV repairman, now he's got some Don Knotts energy, if you want to talk does. about small-time sheriff He does. People. What's happening, everybody? Well, appara- are- apparently his biggest role was on Bat- the Batman TV series from the 60s. He was like random cop in a lot of episodes, so <laughs> it, it it works out well for Whatever him. Whatever you future, say, Chief O'Hara. Yeah, huh? Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's a uh, so you you when they're in the pressure cooker of that house overlooking where they're going to assassinate the president, th- it gets really interesting. There are like you know Frank Sinatra is going to threaten the kid, and he's going to use that as leverage over the the mom, and of course the sheriff is there, but the sheriff is is sweet on the mom, and you know the last thing the sheriff wants to do is risk the 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 safety of the boy. Not just because he's an innocent child, but also because it's going to eliminate any possibility of him marrying the mom. And uh, I mean, uh, that's how I read it. Anyway, um, by oh, the yeah. way, the uh, yeah. the guy the the um, the guy who's the Secret Service, who was the Secret Service, the dad or the grandpa, right? He he's eliminated. Um, isn't he eliminated quickly or no? It's the it's the other Secret Service guy that's eliminated. It's quickly. the guy that comes with the sheriff to the house right. who is actually right. a Secret Service yes. guy. Yes, he's gunned who, down. Who used to who used to work under Pop under Pop, AKA right? The Peter. grandpa. But so you end up with this pressure cooker where there's the grandpa who was in the Secret Service and the sheriff and the mom and the kid and these three and then later two hoods who are going to do this job. And they, you know, there's like, they got to go get, get some medicine because, because, uh, the, because the, uh, what, what is it? The, the, the sheriff gets shot in the arm. And so they got to like, pop, pop has a heart, pop has a heart condition. So they got to get his medicine. And there's, there's like a toy gun, but there's also a real gun. So the kid does a switcheroo where he's got the real gun instead of the toy gun. There's just a lot of cranking up of the tension. I believe it's Chekhov's toy gun. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Yes. From, from Chekhov toys. If a child plays with a toy gun, then later it must be swapped for a real gun and fired. Come down to Chekhov's toy store. All our toys have meaning. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's, I mean, that's, for me, I mean, there is a scene where they send one of the, one of the hoods down and it, it, you know, to check out what's going on. He's spotted at the phone booth and it leads to a shootout and he, and he kills a guy, but he dies too. And it's, and that, then they know something is going on, but the, the train is going to be there. But most of the action is this psychological ratcheting up of the tension in the house where they're like, if we, we, you know, they might kill us when they're done or they might just leave. But if that happens, the president is dead. So we have to do something right to protect the president, me, the sheriff, you, the former Secret Service agent. We've got to do something. But but what could, what are we even empowered to do here? And you, you're just a TV repair kid. Surely you can't help at all. And the answer is he clamps like a thing from the mains to the TV to the metal 
table that they're going to use to snipe the president, which is going to electrocute the sniper. And like, it just, I really liked that, that heart of this movie that it is this, uh, it's a bunch of people in an enclosed space bottled up with uh, an enormous amount of tension and a ticking clock. Uh, I, I thought it was really effective. And, and everything is important. I mean, we, we joke about Chekhov's guns, but everything plays a part. This thing, this movie isn't long enough to waste any time or to waste any, you know, tangents or anything. Yeah. What you see comes comes into the story every time. It reminds me of a movie called The Desperate Hours, which stars mm-hmm. Frederick March, who we'll talk about in a little bit. That movie takes forever. And that's it's Bogart's last movie. And Bogart is the bad guy. And it's a home invasion movie where Frederick March and his family are being held captive. And it just takes forever. And this movie, David's right, it doesn't waste any time. And it's the the way it's laid out to people move around and there are enough characters that it doesn't real really feel claustrophobic. Obviously, you feel the fear that the characters do, but there's enough going on that you're not just, you know, turning away from the screen because it's the same old thing for 20 or 30 minutes. Right. Yeah. And I'm realizing my my dad probably loves this because he's a train buff and he's an electrical engineer and this has trains and electricity <laughs> as a plot point. It does. And and, and it, it really handles does. both of them very very realistically. Um, yes. It does. So, uh I this is a movie that I enjoy but I really hate some of the overriding thematic <laughs> stuff uh, in in ways that make it a thing that I'm like, oh, I'm going to be on a podcast. I'll rewatch it. But I don't go, oh, suddenly I've got to rewatch that one where the abrasive uh, brow beating misogynist sheriff gets exactly what he wanted at the very beginning, which was to browbeat this nice lady into being his girlfriend because everybody needs a gun. And uh, and the, the moral of the movie is if only they'd given that kid a real gun from the beginning. Yeah. Good kid with a gun can stop well, a bad kid I mean, with a gun. Spoiler <laughs> alert: we, we watched two movies with very large casts, and there are a total of two women in, in uh, both true. casts. Mm. So. Yeah, Shelley, I said it earlier. Stop being such a woman. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> to, uh, Put me in quote, my place. <laughs> to quote, to it quote, is a quote, Sheriff Bud, or I forget his name now. Todd. Uh, Todd. Sheriff Todd. Todd. Sheriff Todd. Sheriff with one Todd, D. Todd with one D. Damn yeah. it. Yeah, this movie is so economical. He only has one D in his name. <laughs> <laughs> He's too busy catching bad guys. There, there is a, a remake directed by Yui Bowl yep. with Ray Liotta. Where where the sheriff has two D's. Mm. That's so <laughs> Audiences would never believe a man with only one D in his name. That's right. And Dominic Purcell plays the Frank Sinatra character, which is is trading down. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The uh, the I, I like. I mean, the Sinatra having him in this movie. Like he's got the banter. There's a lot of banter. He's like a charismatic villain, which is good. I was I was thinking like this is a good. I was actually reminded a little bit of Die Hard, where it's sort of like, yeah, I kind of like the villain. He's yeah. charismatic. I don't he talks. think he's anywhere near as charismatic as Alan well, Rickman. No, Come but on. like, <laughs> I mean, but Alan Rickman but for, has a whole skyscraper. This is a very small ranch house. So and also for a 1950, 1950s movie where bad guys were supposed to be like uh, snidely whiplash with the mustache, it, it's a very. Um, 
He's a very uh, alluring form he of evil. He wears a hat in the house, people. Uh, yeah, okay. Had, well. There's a whole like psychological aspect to it. Like, who is this guy? And like the fact that he keeps telling different stories about how he got his silver star and how he really obviously wants to believe that he's the hero of the story, even though he's the villain. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed all of that. Also, it leads to... Um, one of the great lines of movie history, if you ask me, which is you're embarrassing me in front of the sheriff. Which, uh, <laughs> Not in front of the Klingons. I, I just, I think that is great. Um, guess what? The president doesn't die because the uh, first thug gets, uh, uh, it, it tr- gra- grabs the sniper rifle, which has been electrified. And, uh, in a kind of delightful scene because he's being electrocuted he 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 uh he just keeps shooting the 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 gun and and sort of moving around and so everybody is alerted to the fact that there is a a shooter an active shooter up on the hill the the presidential train just goes right on through doesn't stop because they know that something bad is going on that was after they killed the uh the guy they sent down into the street, they did that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, they, in the end, they use the, uh, switcheroo kid gun, uh, after it is, you know, variously on the floor and being kicked around as they try to fight Frank Sinatra. And in the end, the mom shoots him. And then, uh, of course our friend, the sheriff shoots him, uh, the killing blow and they bond over their, uh, shooting another man, and therefore they can they can be together forever. Well, in suddenly, we're, we're, we're married in some cultures already now because yeah. we've killed a man together. Yep. That that sweet date where we we both shot a man and, and yeah. saved the president, but you know that wasn't that wasn't the and and the part. gun that we used is in Timmy's scrapbook. There's their funny story for the for the uh, you know the profile on them after they've been married forty years, and mm. the local paper comes <laughs> and says, "Hey, how did you two meet?" And they say, "Well, funny story. Yeah. One time a guy came to kill the president in our fly spec town, and we shot him together." Yeah. And we've been inseparable ever since. I shot, I, I shot to incapacitate, and then he shot to kill. Yeah. Aww. This movie would have only been more romantic had they punched a communist in the face. Mm. <laughs> I also uh, really enjoy uh, Frank Sinatra at the end after his little buddy gets fried and the, the train keeps going and... Frank Sinatra realizes he's not going to get paid and how he just becomes a crying little baby. Yep. I think that's great. I think that's a great I, progression of that character. He's like, I didn't get to kill the guy. Come yeah. on. But, but that's part of the moralism of the era. I mean, you, you have to do that because you've basically made him a charismatic villain and you've shot him at the end, but you have to humiliate him as yeah. well, which is what yeah. Sterling Hayden has been trying to do for the whole movie. And because Frank Sinatra is the star of the movie, you have to drive the point home in a rather aggressive fashion. Does it bother anybody else that when Paul Freese goes down into town and kills and gets killed, that's not the point, presumably, at which the train path is stopped or when Frank Sinatra thinks, you know what, maybe they won't have the train behave as it was expected yeah. to behave. It doesn't I, occur to him at that no, point. No, that's, that's yeah. one of the flaws of the plot yeah. of the movie. I think they even suggest that as soon as that happens, they they decide not to 
um, stop the train in town. Yeah, the, right? they, retro, they retroactively mentioned that that was when the decision was made later in the movie. But I mean, I, to me, it sells the fact that Sinatra's uh, hood is not thinking everything all the way through and is maybe not yeah. the smartest guy. And maybe wants to kill the president because uh, it'll make him a big man, right? Like regardless of the contract or something like that. But yeah, because well, at that, that moment- he knows a lot about presidential assassination history. He yes. knows about Garfield and McKinley and the oh, yeah. attempt on Roosevelt. That's deep cut. But my, my initial opening line was going to be, I'm really glad we're here to discuss Stephen Sondheim's assassin. I was going to say- I was just <laughs> I was going to say, he just wanted to be part of Assassin's. He saw the off-Broadway production right. and said, okay, now I know what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Neil Patrick Harris could have played me. <laughs> I, I can't believe no one has brought up uh, Deputy Slim, who for my money <laughs> is one of the greatest actors mm-hmm. in um, this movie for delivering the line, did some galoot discover uranium? When when people are rushing around, <laughs> and yeah, good good read, Slim. Well done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good old Slim. Mm-hmm. Slim dies. Well, no, actually, Slim is shot, but Slim will recover. The TV repairman dies. TV repairman be... dies, and of course, the the guy they send down to uh, yeah to check it out. It's yes. R.I.P. Paul Freeze. Yeah. I also want to point out. I I stream this. I stream the movie on Amazon. And the print uh, of this movie, I, IMDb TV. I I I don't know through what source it was, but the print of the movie that they streamed digitally. Um, anytime someone smoked, and it was a lot because it's the 1950s. Anytime mm. someone lights up a cigarette, they digitally uh, altered the picture so that it was blurred around their mouth. <laughs> In this movie, in which so six weird. people die. Wow. Yeah, I. I did not see that on Paramount Plus, which is neither did I. I. That's that's why you pay for Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus. <laughs> well, and uh, when when the movie was colorized by the Hal Roach Studios, uh, what is Frank Sinatra's famous nickname? Old blue, blue eyes. eyes. Yeah, old brown eyes. Really. <laughs> yeah, they colorized the his eyes brown. The chairman of the board of assassins. Well, that's acting, okay? <laughs> acting. He acted brown. He acted so there. hard. His eyes. Don't it make color. my blue eyes brown? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I like. I, I think uh, everything kind of runs together. But I, I want to say that in dialogue right at the end, they mentioned that the TV repairman is like critical, but he's going to be okay. No, I, I, I do. I, I think we've got it. Slim lives. The slim. TV okay. Repairman dies. That's the thing. Yeah, I think that's right. Slim. We. We got guys called Slim. We got guys in the other movie called Jigs. We got all these nicknames. Yeah. I can't Itch keep any of these guys straight. Yeah, it's Judd. The, Judd, the TV repairman, didn't make it. There's like a really quick like, no, he didn't make it. But the other guy's going to live. But what about who? It also depends on which version of Suddenly You've Seen because it fell out in, into the public domain. And there are it's it's either 75 minutes, 77 minutes or 82 minutes. So you could have seen. Who knows? You know, maybe there was a, a line that saved Judd, and maybe <laughs> they cut the line. Well, the, the, ver- you know, the, version, the version on Paramount Plus is titled with an exclamation mark, so that I guess they... Uh, well, that's the, what the original the, yeah, the yeah. movie poster was. All right. Yeah. Well, I... Because suddenly... It, it's, uh, hmm. it, like I said, it is, uh, it is taut and very one-act play in that house, mm-hmm. and it's short, and I think the Sinatra performance is fun, and so I liked it. That's, it's it's like no it. uh, it's no a musical from the 1930s, but uh, it's okay. 
could I could I just say because I can't help calling out actors. Of course, Paul Fries, who I've mentioned, who is quite the well-known voice actor from Rocky and Bullwinkle to everything you can possibly think of, especially in the 50s and 60s and in the radio era before. But I like James Gleason, who's usually just sort of a galoot guy in, in earlier movies and a sidekick and not very interesting. And I never really liked him all that much. But as Pop, he's just like... A, a calm present. He's he's a little bit oh back in my day when I was yeah. in the Secret Service, but not too much. He doesn't overdo it, and I really like that. And I think you know, especially when it's contrasted with Sterling Hayden being ridiculous and Nancy Gates being boring. Um, I, I enjoyed James uh, Gleason. I enjoyed Paul Frees as the the short tied thug who doesn't make it to the end of the movie, and Frank Sinatra. Yeah, James Gleason uh, deserves more credit than he gets. He's he's not flashy. He's one of those that guys that showed up in everything from Night of the Hunter to Arsenic on Old Lace and loads and loads of other stuff. Uh, I forgot is, he was in Night of the Hunter. Oh my god, you're uh, right. Yeah, he's uh, wow. he, he's he's one of those comfort food character actors that that was in loads of movies that everybody knows for the stars. My only final thought is my big complaint with Frank Sinatra as a performer, uh, whether it's on stage or. Um, uh, or in a movie is that he never, he, he always, he never wanted to look uncool or ridiculous. And in this movie, he does look uncool and ridiculous in parts. And I think that's why it's a good performance by him. All right. Well, it, let's move on to seven days in May, mm. 1964, John Frankenheimer from a screenplay by Rod Serling starring Burt Lancaster Kirk Douglas. Uh, also, uh, Frederick March is the president of the United States. And uh, and Shelley, hey, Ava Gardner's in it. She's the only woman in the movie. Mm-hmm. Hello, Helen Klebe. She's over here going, hi, I've just come into the door to give you a message. Yeah, yeah it's not, it doesn't count. <laughs> like, no, I, it does not count. Ava, Ava Gardner's performance is also listed more prominently than it is I, it appears, in my opinion yeah, yeah. But, but it's such an inspiring role for women being a kept woman oh dear yeah <laughs> yeah and and as uh, I, I said earlier in our conversation so uh Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner go way back to the killers in 1946 as Edmund O'Brien was also in that movie so uh if I want to imagine the history of Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner I guess I'll do the killers rather than this movie sure, sure. Well, this one is taut, though not as taut as the other one, because uh, it's a bit longer. It's longer. It's two hours long. And it unravels at the end, I think, a little bit. Mm. But there's a lot of good stuff in here. I um, So this is a, also black and white, this is a uh, a really kind of a thought experiment. I don't know the background of... of, uh, it was of, a book of the book and the and and then the and then Serling's screenplay, but it it seems to be very much sort of like what would it look like if there were a an attempt by the military to overthrow the U.S. government? What would it look like, and how would it unravel in a in a very kind of in some cases almost like a serious documentary like kind of like let's imagine what a, a uh, all the president's men kind of thing would look like if it was the military trying to it was uh, it was a book that from 1962 which Kennedy who was president at the time actually liked and encouraged that movie the movie to be made so much so that when they filmed the scene in front of the White House at the beginning where there's protests he arranged to be in Hyannisport that weekend so that they could film without 
interference of presidential security. And huh. So he really That's wanted right. this made. It came out in 64, obviously, after he died. Uh, but he it, was... In fact, it was it. delayed. Uh, it was going to come yeah. out in December uh, right. 63, and people didn't want to see that. No, this that uh, this and Dr. Strangelove both for December 63 and both uh, delayed right. for obvious reasons. Mm. Right. And this is a part of a cycle of political movies. There's the best man. I guess you could go back to the Manchurian candidate. But mm-hmm. this three or four years, Dr. Strangelove, of course, failsafe, where there's just a bunch of political thrillers. I would argue that this is the one one of the ones that sort of takes the premise farthest out just in terms of what what's the most terrible thing that could happen? The military (laughs) decides that it's going to take over the government. It's not a spy movie in the traditional sense. So it's interesting. I hadn't seen it in a really long time. And for some reason, I was thinking more of The Best Man, which is more like a political intrigue drama from the same year. And I saw this and I was like, oh, so I see. One of the things that I think is interesting about the the way this movie is structured is um, it it has a few different parts. And the first part, Shelley, when you talk about like taking this to the extreme, what I like about the first part of the movie, and it's a little bit dense, but it really is like a, the movie is concerned with how would it work? Like, what would it look like? How would you do it if you were a uh, a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who was conspiring to overthrow a president who was doing things that you believed? And again, I think that there is to a certain degree sympathy or at least the 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 villains of the piece are are not cartoonish. Well, I mean, they get more cartoonish as it goes, but they are, you're trying to understand why they, these military men would move against the constitution. And it's because they believe that the president is going to get everybody in the United States killed by the Russians by signing a, uh, a non-aggression pact and scrapping all the nuclear weapons. Yeah. Disarmament pact. Yeah. But but the flaw in that is that there are all these conspirators led by Burt Lancaster's character, who's this charismatic, uh, dare I say, right-wing patriot, but the other people who are almost, who are equal to him in rank because he has the support of all those service heads are not pictured at all. So you don't really have this sense of like how he's brought this right. large, large group together. And yeah. that sort of messes yeah, with because, the integrity of the movie. Because I think the movie is more interested in the first part. So like I find the first 15 minutes of this kind of, if if not impenetrable, very difficult to get around because it is almost most concerned with the logistics of overthrowing the government, which is like, okay, which, and it's funny because the last half of this movie is psychological. The last half of this movie is a, a bunch of people who've sworn allegiance to the constitution being challenged about their behavior and the delusions they tell themselves and all of that. But the first part of it, there's an awful lot of like, how would you do it? Well, you, you set up a secret base and there's like a secret code word and they're there. And, and of course it's a, uh, it's Kirk Douglas who basically figures out that something very strange is going on and brings it to the attention of, uh, of the president. But um, I just, th- I think it's really interesting that the first part is very nuts and bolts. It's very, I'd say. Well, it's it, procedural. Yeah. It's procedural. I would say in terms of like a, a, a sci-fi, I mean, it's, it's Rod Serling, a speculative fiction work about like, how would it work? Like focused on not as much about the people at that point, but like, how would you do it? 
And and that's the first part of the movie. And then the, the second part of the movie is much more of like, who are these men and why do they do the things they do? That's that's actually more of the middle part of the movie, because the very first part of the movie, we start with silent protests at the White House that's that then true. become violent, which is yeah. super weird. Like that nobody is talking weird. and then all of a sudden there's violence. And then you spend some time with the president and his inner circle. And my first note was oh my God, how many middle-aged men are in this movie? And the all answer is all of them. <laughs> all yes. of them. And, and, and we spend a lot of time talking about the president needing to get a vacation and who are the people that he trusts and Edmund O'Brien is sweaty and He's all this kind of stuff. Blood and you pressure. don't know what's hap- going to happen you sort of I'm I'm thinking to myself, do I really want to spend time with these characters, especially Edmund O'Brien at that point? And then the plot starts <laughs> well. to reveal itself. And and so that it I takes think like, you are and, being very disrespectful to Senator Foghorn Lakehorn. <laughs> <laughs> I say I say and, now and I thing, agree with Mr. Uh, Phil Michaels. The one part of the first part, the way it unfolds that works for me, is that by the time we get to the fact that there's a plot on the government, you're sort of connected to these characters and you're like, wait, is this really what's happening? Oh yeah. my God. And it's it's not even just that. It's that you you start with that silent protest, you're getting the names of the people, and we don't know anything about them yet. And so they both have people protesting them and supporting them. And then you start to meet the president and you're not really all that impressed by him. He's he's kind of just there. Right. Yeah. I, I was kind of like those protesters. Those protesters had a point, honestly. Right. Yeah. He's Screw a this guy. old man. Yeah. What a, what a jerk. <laughs> I don't like but him. But then. But then you've got Britt Lancaster just Lancastering it up all over the screen. Well, I'll and... tell you this, Senator. We're going to the Soviets know our weaknesses, and uh, yeah, and you know I'm going to bloviate in the most velvety way I can. <laughs> and and you don't always get actors who can command the screen with their back to the camera. You know, his introduction is completely facing away mm-hmm. in close up, and it's great. And so, yeah, by the time, you know, I I like the impenetrability of the plot at the beginning because you don't really know what's going on. You're you're just as kind of in the dark as Kirk Douglas. And then the middle part, it's everything starts to connect. Everything starts to make sense. All of these people go out and piece it together. And then the last third of it turns into a very... Uh, Rod Sterling speaking into a dictaphone yep. when everybody's sitting in chairs. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that sometimes works because yeah. the Twilight Zone. I mean, he writes good speeches. Good. They're speeches, yeah. but he writes good speeches. Shelley, oh, yeah. Shelley mentioned speculative fiction, and that's something that I wanted to circle back on mm. uh, because I saw I saw something uh, shocking and alarming that I gather audiences in the 1960s also found shocking and alarming, and that was a blinking digital clock. At the Pentagon. Oh, yes. Uh, it clicked, this, too. The sound oh, of yeah. it would have been maddening if the you were book, sitting there. The book and the movie were set in the not-too-distant not future. 1970. Oh, 1970. What? 1970 yeah. or 1975. Yeah. The future. And the future, you say. Plates. How does this fit into the remit, you say? Here's how. Projection slide screens. Um, <laughs> what was... What, what, uh, the, oh, uh, when they FaceTime... Video conferencing, uh, they, yeah, they, yes. They, they kinescope FaceTime later. I liked all the knobs on the TV, so, so is that for contrast and brightness? Or? That's the thing, is you got to have a lot of knobs. A lot of knobs. One of the things that cracked me up about those uh, FaceTime conferences is that almost every one of them is is actually looks like they could be done, and the one with Burt Lancaster, where it keeps cutting back to him, he's clearly sitting at right angles to the TV 
phone, and yet when you see him on yeah, the other where's end of the, the camera? Call, he's where looking is the camera? straight at it. <laughs> hmm? It's just what? magic. Is that how center yeah. stage works? In it the is. 60s? That's 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 how, that's how it works. That's why it's so Apparently. thick, Shelley. It's so thick. <laughs> well, because they want. So one of the challenges is that they want to get you to buy the premise that this is a president you've never heard of, and he's done a thing already when the movie starts that you. That, that you've never heard of because it hasn't happened, which is complete nuclear disarmament. And and so you it, it is and which already you might disagree with. a speculative uh, premise, right? So you set it in the 20 minutes in the future, right? And it's just far enough in the future that it's it's uh that that you're off guard and you don't know what the what the the rules on the ground are. And you know, it, it is like I like I like Serling doing this sort of like exploration of like, well, how would they do it? And it's like, there's a secret budget and they, they set up troops and they're going to take over the the TV networks and he's got a whole plan. I, I like that part of it. Um, but it is kind of a vehicle for the last third of the movie, which is really like the highfalutin discussions of, uh, of do you, uh, you know, do you serve the constitution or not? And, and Burt Lancaster, who I really enjoy in this, he's, <laughs> Yeah, he's a maniac, but yeah. I, I enjoying him in this because because I believe that he believes he is the person to save the country. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, and that's and that's what drives him, and it leads to those very surling moments, which is like, I I you know who do you serve? Do you follow the Constitution? And it's funny because Burt Lancaster kind of asked Kirk Douglas that question. Kirk Douglas is like, I follow the Constitution. And he says, take a vacation, kid. <laughs> Get out of here. It's we, like, we, it's, we it's talk good about, stuff. Uh, we've talked about actors sort of playing against type or playing against the type they were, um, they the, the public saw them as. Um, Burt Lancaster, of course, famously uh, uh, a liberal person playing a uh, uh, right wing general, but. I, I would argue that Burt Lancaster's best roles were when he was playing a villain, both this and uh, uh, Sweet Smell of Success. He's he's really good when he is a a uh, a character whose uh, moral compass is bent to non-existent. Well, I like how, it, you know, again, he's not he's not. Yeah, he's not a totally evil yeah. guy in this, but no, he's deluded, say, right? He's, he's deluded, deluded like guy. like you yeah, would if you yeah. were going to overthrow a government. This is the delusion you would have is you're a general and you're convinced that you're the only one who can there save won't be a country in, in country. a year and a half. And and you believe that he's competent, right? You believe that not only could he do it, but he's mm-hmm. doing it from a position of having planned and executed in an interesting way. And that's much more interesting than like watching Frank Sinatra go crazy at the end of that movie. Yeah, exactly. Al- although, although for someone who is supposedly so competent um, and his plan really was well thought out, uh, why would he have written all of the plan out in, in love letters to his kept woman? That never made sense to oh, me. Oh, I don't think that he wrote no. out the plan to his his his. I'm not the so whole either. plan, no, but, no, but just I, I, the, his beliefs and what he was going to do. I think, they were very careful not to tell us what was in those letters, which is a thing we can talk about later in terms of yeah. how that was used I in the plot. I think it was but. more going to be, uh, oh, so you think that uh, General Scott is such a great guy. Well, here's his yeah. love letters I, to I didn't, his mistress. I didn't read there as being any information about the plot no. in the letters at all. It's pure character assassination. And yeah. that's that moment where the president decides we're not going to ruin this guy. Um, yeah. and, and that's, I thought, a very smart thing in this script is the idea that 
the adherence to bro code? Well, uh, no, no. The the idea that that it's more damaging to the United States for people to know that this almost happened than you know, just resign and leave and we're yeah. not going to talk about it. I'm not well, going to bring you up on charges because mm-hmm. it would make the Soviets know how how weak we are right now. So See, we're just going to... Those are separate points. Like, because I, the, the, they make the point fairly clearly that they're not going to explain exactly what the plan was for that, for that reason, to preserve the country and to keep... Just to keep things under wraps, which is completely separate from he's a bad dude in his love relationships and maybe he said things that would assassinate his character. And I question why it would be off limits unless we're just protecting the Ava Gardner character. That's the only legitimate reason to not release those letters. I I think maybe the fear that he would then, if he was destroyed, he would disclose what he was doing or something like that. And it would. But I I agree. It's a little tenuous. It's It's several leaps you have to take to get there. Um, I think it's interesting too because that's the that's the great <laughs> the great shame of Kirk Douglas, right? Is like he takes the letters and she blames him and is like, "Oh, you're working for the general," and he's like, "No, no it might be." I, I, really I love that you. as a little plot point. I think yeah, that's great because that he good. has spent, and it's clear that he has some feeling for this woman, whatever his mission is, and he feels pretty bad about having to go do yeah. it. And then the worst possible thing can happen. Not only has he betrayed her, but he's done so for what she believes is the benefit of this terrible person right. that she's not in love with anymore. Yeah. I think Kirk Douglas is uh, con- being conflicted here is really interesting. He's the, he's not the center of the movie, but he's the pivot point. Uh, you know, everything else happens because of him. He does disappear for quite a while in the middle of the movie after it's like, thank you it for the information. Weird. Now go over there. Uh, but uh, there are some good moments. The moment where he is coming into the White House while the general is leaving, which is that moment of like, oh, there it is. Because he's supposed to be also on a three-day weekend because um, he's not, he supports the Constitution. Um, I, I think, I don't know, I think that's all the, really interesting with that character um, that that he is put in that situation. But he's not, yeah, he does disappear. It's it's a little bit odd. I guess, although with an ensemble that large, I, I kind of like yeah. it when they don't feel like the star has to be in every scene. And he yeah. was the driving force. <laughs> yeah, he kicks it off. Made. And then and then they put him on the side and it's not. I mean, I, the other thought. So while while I was watching this movie, the other thought I had is. Uh, so Aaron Sorkin watched this movie before he did A Few Good Men, right? Like, <laughs> oh, like, several times. Like, yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, Clearly. I I see now. <laughs> yeah, I he, see. He, he watched see. this. Uh, he watched this before uh, writing the West Wing pilot and basically yeah. charting out his whole yeah. career. I just this, this is probably one of Aaron Sorkin's favorite movies. Maybe yeah. <laughs> I just assume that Josh Lyman is descended from. Well, from yeah, and there's that too, right? There's right. a Lyman. Yeah, right. yeah, it's got to be right. Um, it's got to be. I mean, one of the th- uh, going back to Burt Lancaster for a second. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things um, that he was famous for behind the scenes that works so well, and why I don't think story wise we have to see him gathering the conspiracy is that he sells it so well because he appears on screen as he was known to be on many sets, a massively powerful egotist, a massively, massively narcissistic egotist. Um, And super charismatic. Yeah. And, and he could, he could sell anything to anybody. At least he tells himself that he could. I mean, that's, that's how he operates in Elmer Gantry too. That's why that rainmaker as well on a on a much yep. smaller scale, but same yep. thing. No, he's a he's a great 
villain in this. And again, I think the fact that he, he is righteous and believes he's doing the right thing, but is tempered by the fact that, yeah, it's also a giant ego trip for him, but like, yeah. And, and Burt Lancaster, it is a really good performance. I, I, I was riveted every time he was on screen. I think it's really good. It's funny too, because I think the movie, I assume the movie wants it to be this way, but like Burt Lancaster is super charismatic and um, Frederick March, eh, you know? No. I think that's his character. I like the performance a lot. I really do. Oh, it's it's a great performance, a but performance. He, he he's not that president that you want to have a beer with. No. That's the you no, know, that's he, the thing. He's what if Adlite Stevenson was elected president? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, and that's that's oh, one of the God. things I love about the movie is that the good person, the person you're supposed to root for, is not the one you really want to go with, right? He's not the charismatic person. Um, right. And his, he's but March, not a star. I think I think March more than a lot. I mean, he had been acting for forever and ever and played leading man roles in the early 30s. He was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931. So March has this long career as a leading man. And then as he goes into his dotage, he does all these super interesting character roles. He did a lot of theater in the 50s. He did Inherit the Wind a couple of years before this. He does this. He keeps working for a long time. And I actually find young Frederick March super boring. But old Frederick <laughs> March, I find incredibly interesting and one of the better actors into age into parts then because there are a lot of other actors who are like honey it's time to hang it up and he's not one of them <laughs> i com- i completely agree and he he is still to me the definitive screen uh jekyll and hyde performance yes yes that, yes. that was yeah. that was the thing yeah. from his earlier filmography that for me uh he completely absolutely owned and and a bunch of his other stuff was okay he's he's playing you know the handsome fresh-faced leading man kind of thing Good for him, I guess. Um, but he really, he really got to do interesting stuff when he got old and boring, as it were. You, you mentioned Inherit the Wind, which was my first introduction to him, and I, I never liked him in that. I always thought he was really hammy and really um, didn't do a good job with the William Jennings Bryan character. That I think that's the character. I mean, yeah, I, I, I've seen better. Be, I think it, he's better in this. Kirk Douglas does a better job of that in a version that was uh, done in the 1980s for TV. But um, I think this is a great performance. Some of us don't have TVs, Phil. Well, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, My TV only gets FaceTime with the president. Uh. But (laughs) I think his performance here and in a bunch of, as as you were saying, Shelley, a bunch of his old man roles were, were... were really good, and it's caused me to have a a, a rethinking of, of of Frederick March, a, a March Spring, as it were. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, just wait until there are seven days in May, and then you'll be mm. uh, you'll be there. No, I like I like or, or, or until they run the Preakness on a Sunday. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I love as that. You yeah. Like, talk about defensive fact checking. Is people are like, but the Preakness always happens on a Saturday, and they have a slide on like NBC that says first time on Sunday, and it's like, ha, and it's it's on the back of a taxi. Take cab. that, pedants. It's- we know yeah. it's usually on By a Saturday. By 1970, the world will have changed. Yeah. It'll be on Sunday. <laughs> Apparently, a Sci-fi. script doctor came in and, and just said, yeah, just have a throwaway thing where it's it's the first ever on a Sunday. It's Boom, fine. problem solved. It's fine. Well, Nobody cares. And see, see, this is one of those things where like Rod Serling famously came up with the ending for Planet of the Apes. And that's the only thing that remains from his original script. But he really, it started here where originally it was going to be Kirk Douglas staring at that sign, the first prickness on a Sunday. And he's like, damn it, you, you did it. You did it. Bastards. Monsters. You blew you know. it all up. You ruined the triple crown. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, uh, I have to mention 
Mar- our friend Martin Balsam. Mm-hmm. He's the chief of staff. He's sent to Spain where he Poor visits guy. with Admiral John, John Houseman. Admiral well, John Houseman. Well, when Admiral John Houseman <laughs> speaks, people listen. That's, that's, that's right. True. You know why? That's because he earned it. Yes, uh, yes, yes, a very important you come to my aircraft character with your brains full of mush. <laughs> and your American army. Anyway, uh, he goes look there. Look to your left. Look to your right. One fleet will be disloyal to the president. Okay, so he goes there. Martin Balsam does. And he gets his confession as being part of the part of the like he declines houseman's character declined to be part of the plot but knows about the plot and didn't report it so it's like a very like specific thing they do but then what happens is martin balsam and the entire commercial airplane that he is riding he is flying on uh to madrid uh crashes and he's kept the uh he's kept the secret letter in the cigarette box in his pocket this becomes a cigarette yes it becomes a, a plot point later my question for all of you is so did did the American military shoot down a commercial airliner, or is this just an incredible coincidence? I think it was an incredible coincidence. Is my... Oh, see, I, I oh, like well. the idea that they shot him down. Mm. I do too, although there's no further, the plot thereafter does not give any indication that that's provided Lancaster warning and that he changes anything from it, but I assumed that it was done intentionally. I, I, assume, I assume they had eyes on it and some guy followed along and put a bomb on the plane. I've never read the book, so I don't know if that is explicit in the book. I would suspect they they didn't make that explicit in the movie if it was, because they were very sensitive about such things. Rod Serling wrote a TV film about a, a bomb on a plane that apparently inspired a couple of incidents, and he and he famously said, "I'm I'm devastated by this. I never want to see that film again. I you know just put it away." So they were very sensitive about such things. So, you know, I, I think that's I think that's why they left it at the plane went down, but the plane yeah. went down in Spain where it took off from. And for an American military jet to shoot down a plane over Spanish airspace, even then, that's something that that would have been caught. Even in, in the future of 1970, in the future probably. of 1970. I think if you're going to make that a plot thing, then you you can do a bit where right after it's reported that the plane crashed, you cut to Burt Lancaster hanging up a phone and going, well, that's that or, or, <laughs> right. or some such <laughs> and, thing. And there's you, nothing in the, in the, in the story, which leads you to believe, which I actually kind of like the idea that, that, that the entire future of democracy in America might pivot on the chance crashing of an airplane just <laughs> by chance. I liked the misdirect aspect where I figured either Martin Balsam or Edmund O'Brien would die, and my money was on Balsam because Edmund O'Brien was too obvious, and they they captured him, and he's just a wreck. And so I I, I sort of liked it as a as a mixed misdirect because even though I think I figured it out, I was every the minute Edmund O'Brien went to El Paso, I was like, oh, he's toast, he's gonna be killed. Yeah, and, and by ju- <laughs> ju- juxtaposing those two guys being in jeopardy. Um, it increases the paranoia right. that you're, yes. oh, yeah. that obviously yeah. that plane didn't go I down. Say, I home. say, I'm going to Texas, I say. <laughs> you save the one with the cartoon ass. I tell you yeah. what, I ain't going to be a target for nobody. I'm going to go incognito. <laughs> That's right. They keep bringing me bottles of whiskey and I tell them I don't want whiskey. Go infiltrate a secret military base. Haven't gone to seed Senator do it. So, yes. the, the chief so, of staff, to me, Paul Gerard. He sells he sells the fact that that what what ends up happening is something that was done intentionally to prevent him from going back was the way that he sells putting the letter into his cigarette case in that he knows 
he knows what they are going to do to him. And that is probably the only way that he can salvage the thing that he knows will prevent the insurrection. And maybe he assumes he's going to be shot. And, you know, how many stories are there of cigarette cases that deflect a bullet? Yeah, he's just keeping it safe, right? So that somebody tries to just beat him up and take take the letter. um, He he is just confident. He is confident that somebody is going to come for him. It's a matter of when and how. Meanwhile, Senator Clark, Edmund O'Brien, is just driving down a dirt road until helicopters stop him. And then he's, and then we get the very exciting scene where he talks, uh, Colonel Mutt, the friend of Jigs Casey, friend, friend of Kirk Douglas to, uh, to break him out. And they end up, uh, doing a very exciting, like escape in an all-terrain vehicle after they shoot a guy. That's a cool ATV. Yeah. And then flying <laughs> commercial back to Dulles. And then, and, oh. <laughs> yes. and then they get to the airport, wait for their flight and, yeah. uh, fly back to Dulles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where he does, disa- um, where, where Mutt disappears. Yeah. Unlike some films that are set at Dulles Airport, it was nice to see the actual Dulles Airport. It was very new and at that time. That was like was the first thing new. they ever filmed in it. Very yeah. exciting. State of the art. <laughs> and and what, what, one of my favorite guys is also in the movie, George, George McCready. Oh my God, George uh-huh. McCready. Yeah. I love him so yeah. much. I finally get to play a good guy because my voice sounds <laughs> like this and normally they cast me as villains, Gilda. <laughs> I mean, he's the most villainous sounding good guy ever yeah. in this movie. Mr. President, we must kill our too? enemies. No, I love how he's there for the, the sole purpose of calling everything into question at first. Yeah. Yes. Like that whole sequence is like, well, Kirk I, Douglas might be insane. That's right. That's right. There's the, nothing to prove. You're this. seeing things where nothing is there. I'm sure everything is fine. Why are you talking like <laughs> that? This is how <laughs> I speak. <laughs> It's I get it from my mother. And I don't remember them saying it in the movie, but I read in the credits, he's supposed to be the secretary of the treasury. I guess he's a friend yes. of the president he's or something. He's a friend of the president, he's, yeah. I'm just like, he's, okay. Uh, trusted. He, he has that uh, scene, uh, Frederick March, where he goes, I want my most trusted men, George McCready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, uh, yeah, no, he, he's, he's so, hilarious. He he's, talks like this. Uh, he's so sinister and yet is yeah. on our side. So uh-huh. I guess he's our guy. He's, he's, he's on our side. I would like some French toast as long as we're ordering. I'm glad we've saved the union. Or was I not supposed to laugh there? It's so wonderful that nothing terrible happened. (laughs) Did I did I laugh out loud? I'm I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. (laughs) Oh damn it. So in the end, the president does call Burt Lancaster to the White House and they have a, you know, they have that, that scene where they're giving it back and forth. And he's like, I, I think you're, you know, I think you're incompetent and you're going to get us all killed. And he's like, yeah, but I'm the president. And he's like, well, if I, I could, in, in a moment of, that is like the peak delusion for Burt, Burt Lancaster's character. He's like, if I went out there and said that I, that I was the one that everybody should follow tomorrow, everybody would. And he's like, oh, because everybody loves me. And look at your poll numbers. Your poll numbers are down and everybody loves me. And the president is like, yeah, uh, here's how you do that. You run for office in a year and a half. But uh, before that, I'm the president. doesn't matter what my poll numbers are. I'm the president of the United States and you're not. And they, they have their little, you know, discussion where it's, where it's like, I believe in the, in the, in the constitution. And it's like, well, I believe in myself, which is just as important. <laughs> I, uh, I, I really do love that, that you framed that as, as the president having a Chevy Chase moment. I'm Chevy Chase and you're yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what's more important, the, the constitution or 
or, or me, James Mattoon Scott, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'm, <laughs> I'm very important. And it is, yeah, I mean, this is speechy. Mentioned it earlier. This is, again, Aaron Sorkin's like, yes, yes, more speeches. Yes, I love it. I love it. How much more can men <laughs> speak into their own navels? <laughs> I'll find a way. Rod Serling did actually write by dictating into his dictaphone. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, every now and then it shows. Now, sometimes the speeches are very good. This is one where they're they're good. They're good. You know, it's it works. Good. They're it, not um, they're not too long. I mean, there's there's some right. pontificating there, right. but they don't just drone on. <laughs> not quite uh, as Sorkin one, like or, as, one or yeah. two of Sorkin's speeches do go on far yeah, too long. Yeah, a little bit. But no, it's and this is the core of it, right? Which is it's like you've got to, and how often has this happened in history, right? It is a man who is very confident that he is the one who can save the country and is has decided that he's going to go outside of the Constitution to do it, and then the other man, the President of the United States, says, "No, we have rules." And it doesn't matter how great you think you are, you need to follow the rules. How how fragile our democracy would be if people didn't I can't even go on. Anyway. Yeah. I I just I love the idea of Aaron Sorkin sitting there though and, and watching this and listening to the speeches and being like, you know, these these are really good speeches, but why are they sitting? They're sitting for so <laughs> long. Walk and talk, people. They walk would be and talk. So much better if they were walking. Sitting is the new smoking, guys. Yeah. It'll yeah. get blurred out. I did say in that final scene though, talk. Lancaster is standing and Frederick March is doing the the actor thing. Spencer Tracy famously did this where you sit. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. the guy Power. standing Power move. is the, right, the guy standing is doing the power move, but the guy sitting actually has the power mm-hmm. from an acting perspective. Yeah, yeah, but I like it. I love, I love that part. I thought it was so, so tense, and and uh, and it's the you know, and and Lancaster marches out of there like it doesn't matter that my entire plot has been exposed because I am. I, I'm going to go through with it and I'm going to give my speech and everybody's with me. And at this point, of course, everything is crumbling behind the scenes to the point where he's in the little studio and he's like, well, no, I want to give my speech. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. no, it's like, maybe, maybe not. So, so reality no. has changed around you and that's not going to happen. <laughs> no. So th- th- this is where the movie sort of unravels for me where, yeah. where, because it, it it is basically like someone looked at their watch and finish said, it, oh, finish oh, it, oh crap, we gotta wrap it. this up. And so every <laughs> all these people who were really prepared to throw, overthrow the government just sort of go, eh, let's I'll resign. I'll resign. You got, you got, you got me. me. Yeah. And, <laughs> you got me, Columbo. And I'm then the, the president saw, well, we certainly can't, you know, punish them at <laughs> no. all. And it, it, it would basically be the, the message you're sending is, well, try harder with the Belmont Stakes in a month or two. Yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. And they name check, I don't know if you, you caught it, but they name check McCarthy and they also name check this guy, Edwin Walker, who mm-hmm. was a general yep. who was uh, basically who resigned because he was a white supremacist and yep. he was advocating racism to his troops in on duty and Eisen- he resigned but Eisenhower didn't fire him Eisenhower's like oh dude mate, we'll just give you a command somewhere else and then it, it goes on into the we'll Kennedy just move you to another parish yeah <laughs> right yes. and and so so this the Lancaster character is based partly on Edwin Walker and partly on Curtis LeMay the Vietnam era general mm-hmm. and, and, and a little Douglas MacArthur through. yes and a little bit right there's, a, there's definitely some Douglas MacArthur in there, which is I think the point at which the sort of plot of well we could break this guy but that would break the country which is why MacArthur even though he and Truman's battles were were famous Truman sort of fires him but he never takes the final step of 
humiliating him because MacArthur, right. like the Lancaster character, has people that love him. Right. Right. When right. you fear someone's base, do you want to stir that hornet's nest? Uh, speaking yeah. of history, uh, there is a tie between uh, this movie and, and Frank Sinatra, and that is <laughs> yes. uh, in a lie, which is not true, that uh, every time Ben Mankiewicz introduces this movie on TCM, it drives me nuts, um, where after Kennedy was assassinated, um, it, it was it was it was spread around that, uh, oh, well, Frank Sinatra uh, used his influence to, to make sure that, you know, this this movie got got pulled. Uh, you know, uh, and, and, and pushed to the next year. And that, that never happened. Uh, Frank Sinatra never did that. Um, and, uh, and it, it's, it's, it's interesting that, that is as many interesting things that are very historical that are woven into the movie, that the movie itself generated its own urban legend bits of stuff that is still to this day, over 50, uh, almost 60 years later, uh, still just kind of repeated as fact. Well, and it's got to be the Sinatra Frankenheimer connection because of the Manchurian candidate. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Which, which he did manage to, yeah. to lock right. down for many, many so, years. So it got conflated. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so we should talk about Ava Gardner as the woman who is in this movie. <laughs> I wish she got more of a chance to she, talk. Yeah, she and her role is is so thankless because she's really just there to be the woman who who was the other woman uh, in in Burt Lancaster's life, so that he can be blackmailed. And then there's a kind of Kirk Douglas connection with her. So she's got her roles are basically as they relate to other, to, to men uh, essentially. And I, um, I, I, it's unfortunate. She's an interesting actress. I, I got as a, as a viewer of, of, uh, late 20th century and early 21st century films, I got a real live Tyler vibe from her. Actually. Is that weird? Mm. Is that weird? Mm. She kind of reminded I kinda me. I get it. I think I have I mean, a similar kind of look. Jason, kinda we've vibe. all watched Career Opportunities 200 I don't, times. Right? I mean, who hasn't? <laughs> it's it's a very muted performance for her. It's not what I think of when I think of an Ava Gardner character. The thing about her, she didn't actually make all that many movies. And you think of her having, she had kind of a long career, but she was a long time between movies for a variety of reasons. And like she made a bunch of movies at MGM, none of which did anything. And then she would get loaned out and she'd make movies that that, that are very evocative, like Night of the Iguana, which is actually, I think, the most interesting performance she ever gives. Uh, and and so when you see Ava Gardner, when I see Ava Gardner, even though I know her name, I, I'm always like, oh, Ava Gardner's in this. Right. And it's not like I can think of 10 or 12 Ava Gardner movies without IMDb here to help me, whereas other actresses of the period. And I think pe most people, if you ask them about Ava Gardner, would say, oh, yeah, she's one of those golden age Hollywood people. She probably made a whole bunch of movies. Well, she really didn't. By the way, I completely missed my segue there, which was speaking of Frank Sinatra. Ava Gardner. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's your there's your Sinatra there's your connection. connection. Sure, yeah. there you go. They're all connected. It's all she was, she married. She was married to Frank Sinatra. She was. And and famously, uh, he spent many years being obsessed with her and even more annoying than usual in his attempts either to get her back or to deal with his obsessions. Well, he, as a young boy, he probably saw a movie called Suddenly, which teaches bad <laughs> lessons in that regard. Bad lessons. So, so she, you know, again, there are there. I like the I, I find the scene with her where um, where Kirk Douglas goes to. Um, get 
inf- incriminating information about Burt Lancaster. I think it's an interesting scene because it is him. Like he obviously, she and he have some sort of a connection that's been put on hold. And now he's essentially been ordered by the president <laughs> to romance her so he can steal the incriminating information. And what I like about that scene is that Kirk Douglas feels, he seems to me to be very uncomfortable. I get that, like very uncomfortable with what he's doing and guilty about it. And then that moment where she catches him going through the garbage can with the letters in it, like, ah, uh, it's, it's a really great scene. And of course it's doubled by the fact that he's like, no, 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 no. He's thinking to himself, no, no, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not I'm not working for the general but she thinks he's just there to exonerate to the general up. and clean up things and he can't yeah. tell her because this is all very secret. He can't tell her. It's a good scene. The unfortunate thing is that Ava Gardner is only in this movie as a a plaything essentially she, for various she men. She did she did very good work with very limited material and yeah. to use a term uh, I don't know if coined, but at least popularized by Kelly Sue DeConnick, uh, the comics writer, uh she really was stuck with a sexy lamp part. Uh, yep. where most yep. of her role could be completely substituted by a sexy lamp. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the, that moment that you pointed out right there, Jason is a great moment that entirely serves Kirk Douglas's part yep. and, and, and allows him to do, do good work and do something good. Yep. And, and she is just the sexy lamp that just walked. I mean, back even in the, the way it's shot, he's in the foreground and you uh-huh. see his face and she comes in and catches him and she's there for a few seconds before he realizes that she's caught him. Yeah. But that's all she does in that scene. And that, and again, that's not her fault. That's the way the part was written. She's his backlighting and that's it. Yes, exactly. And, and at the end, you know, there, there is sort of a, a grudging tentative, you know, yes, again, take a rain check and put it in a safe place. And yet I can see, you know, 30 years later, how did you meet? Well, the president ordered me to seduce <laughs> her to get these letters. But it, it feels like, I mean, they feel like they need to put that button on at the end, which yes. that's yeah. just a movie trope. It's just not all that relevant or interesting. I, I think it would have been much more interesting if, if he had said, so can I get a rain check? And she just closed the door on Yeah, it. yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. That Absolutely. would have been yes. way more realistic and she never knows what his role in this was perhaps and and he's right upset about that but too bad if they would have made the movie maybe 10 years later that is what would have happened yeah yeah that's a very shaggy 70s kind of ending right also just because this is set in the future it does not do the star trek thing where it tries to do some stuff to say oh in the far future of 1970 there will be more women present in the things like, no. no ah yes bring in dinner nope. in pill form it's all middle-aged men folks that's just how it is even in the far-off future of 1970 no, in, the fu- in the future women will cook our steaks as we seduce them yes so, so there is a remake of this movie there are a few more women in it i don't know what their mm-hmm. roles are but i'm just looking down the list the enemy within from 1994 the, the so, enemy within it's it's a sort of remake it's not quite there's also a Russian remake from 1983. They made it as a four-hour series, which I, I have no idea how faithful it is. I don't think that would be very but, taut. No. Uh, but apparently at the time when it came out, uh, President Reagan said, oh, things must be changing in Russia if they're doing this kind of movie. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, uh, d- did you watch it, Ronnie? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Probably not. So the very end of this movie 
is after uh, after the president gives his press conference, which is like hilariously like they come out and he's like, I'll be back. I'll be back in half an hour. And then they go away and then they come back. That's and totally then, how that works. And he still has and people, people there. Like, we want to see the Preakness. But we have the Preakness. We can't know. What are you doing? It's well, the first Sunday running. Oh, no. Uh, so all that happens. <laughs> what and if then, the horses are religious? And, and, and Burt Lancaster can't, you know, they're not going to put him on TV. And so he gets sent for my driver. Just take me home. And uh, Phil, you know what happens then? The movie says, go home. There's nothing yeah. more to see here. The end. And gotta, it ends gotta, abruptly. Gotta go. And and no one ever attempted a coup against the president ever again. <laughs> ever again. There 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 is one scene at the end that I really like though, and they it's in the trailer, which is weird. Um, but it's it's cut down in the trailer. It's the one where Burt Lancaster says, "Do you know who Judas was?" Mm-hmm. Oh yeah yeah. And in the trailer, it cuts immediately to Kirk Douglas going. Yeah, it was someone I used to work for who <laughs> disrespected the stars or whatever yeah. his, his line is. But it it's very effective in the movie because he doesn't want to answer. Right. And it's like, are you ordering me to answer? Yeah. Yes. And and that is that is just a really interesting I mean, power tra- dynamic. Trailer's got to speed then. stuff up, David. They're trying to sell something, trying to sell I something. Know, come, well, on, you come, know. come on, come on, come um, on. Uh, because if they're not going to walk and talk, they got to do that. Um, but I I just I love the the power that it gives douglas's line at the end of it it's like that's so much more effective mm-hmm. it's really nice yeah and and it is that's the closure of of kirk douglas's arc here right which is yeah. that he has done he has betrayed his chain of command in order to serve the constitution and in that moment he's challenged directly by his superior officer and and gives it to him and says you know no you were the betrayer here and not me and uh, yeah, that's his that's his little moment after he disappeared for a while there because he's didn't like he's got nothing. He's just a colonel. Doesn't have that much to do. Just go see Ava Gardner. Mm-hmm. Come back. It's fine. <laughs> they don't send him to pick up uh, the senator at Dulles or anything. They could have done that. Uh, nope. He's I, he's just a play toy at that. Point. I say I say that was quite a flight from El Paso. I say. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we haven't even mentioned the fact that El Paso is very hot. It's very steamy. He is the sweatiest man ever <laughs> on film. Also, there is not that much sand in West Texas. I mean, no, there's de- but that was that's insane. The yeah. amount of sand out by when the helicopter comes. No, it, and lo- lands it by looked his more car. like. I mean, there's sand in the in in the Southwest, but yes. it, yeah, it looked like New Mexico or Arizona. Well, yeah, yeah, it did. It's, it didn't look like yeah. El Paso. At all. I mean, El Paso is adjacent to the Sonoran to, Desert, but but New Mexico, the, yeah. The yeah, the location of that base to have that. That kind of topography would have been on the yeah. other side of the border. Uh, of the border. Also, I did whether love whether in Mexico or in New Mexico. I did love that moment where Lancaster uh, pops in on Kirk Douglas, who's got the giant map projection of uh, Texas and New Mexico, and he's like, "Oh, what are you looking at in El Paso?" And he's like, "Nothing, nothing, done, <laughs> nothing, nothing." nothing. There's fine. a really good taco joint I want to try. Carlsbad Caverns is on this yeah. map. Maybe I'm going to tour the national parks. Yeah. Usually, uh, I don't get to play with this, and I wanted to know what Big Bend looked <laughs> like. I just want to go to so, Juarez uh, for. Uh, for vacation sometime that's all that's all i was i was looking at street view of an x i just you know i wanted to know what what was going on it does crack me up every time kirk douglas goes and tries to do something like that and the person just walks right in it's like oh you're searching through the garbage oh you're playing with my toy (laughs) you know what are you doing kirk douglas not so great at the spy craft kirk Kirk douglas a good marine a bad spy and yet they're gonna (laughs) overthrow the u.s government and somebody leaves a crumpled up note 
detailing their plans that Kirk Douglas just just walks in and picks up in front of Burt Lancaster. He picks it up, holds it in his hand for the whole conversation. And at no point is there a moment where he's like, say, uh, that's classified. You should. Put that in the uh, incinerator. It's like, no, no, just <laughs> go on to it. Burn bag. We have burn bags, you know. I, I forgot. You've never been in a room with an overconfident white man. Um, <laughs> never. This, 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 Not this, once. This is, this is, yeah, every this time is, I look in the mirror, baby. It's just funny that, uh, that there, there's like the one piece of paper that's got all the secret plans on it. It's basically the piece of paper that says secret plans and do not give messy. out it's like doodles on us you know it's like x's and y's and yeah. lines and things it's <laughs> i also want to point out he was that just t- trying to do wordle t- two <laughs> years before this movie came out there was a movie called advise and consent mm-hmm. yeah oh, yeah and um in it charles lawton plays a senator from louisiana <laughs> oh, yes he does the mm-hmm. thickest accent <laughs> he in plays humanity. it so much and i was wondering if he was watching this movie and seeing edmund o'brien and going get my lawyer on the phone <laughs> 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 there's only one person who could do that uh, southern accent and that's me Oh, and he's gone to seed by this point man he's just he's a mess poor eddie o'brien mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i say i say he's he's still sweating Yes. Yeah. Any uh, final thoughts about Seven Days in May? I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. It's it's uh, it's the first part is a little impenetrable, but then there's lots of kind of interesting speeches and and some interesting performances. And like I like the Rod Serling script. I liked it. I thought it was I thought it was a, an interesting kind of thought experiment, kind of like I, a good speculative fiction of a sort. I always like Rod Serling. I mean, <laughs> even even the Lesser Twilight Zones, even I still Night just Gallery. Like them. Hey, well, the hey, ones that he hey, wrote. Step yeah. off of Night Gallery for a sec. Yeah. It was not if, that bad. <laughs> if it's a Jack Leard script, don't watch it. If it's they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar, that stands up with any Twilight Zone. Okay, yeah. uh, just saying. Uh, what I'll say about this movie, as as kind of unofficially the second in uh, Frankenheimer's paranoia trilogy of Manchurian <laughs> Candidate, this and seconds, uh, as people mm. have classified it uh, at this point. It's a very enjoyable middle uh, chapter in that phase of of many directors um, have been have been accused or have been studied to have just remade themselves over and over again. And in this case, where Frankenheimer is playing with similar themes in those three movies, um, this is this is a very compelling like if this is the middling middle chapter, uh, then fine. Good. Um, Manchurian candidates, the one everybody knows seconds is the underappreciated last one. Um, that is excellent. Absolutely. Excellent. Um, the, the thing that I, I think I liked most rewatching it this time was that watching these highly competent people planning an insurrection, um, I was able to, uh, with the distance of some time from January of 2021, uh, I was able to think about the uh, the spoof comedy of the early 1980s starring Val Kilmer uh, that, you know, that that could have been made along a similar plot where, uh, to, to Jason's point, the secret plans, you know, do not crumple up and hide um, are are poorly hidden. There are there are things that, yes, you could shoot holes through a mile wide. But the rest of the movie hangs together so well that you kind of don't care. Um, it's it's something that uh, any movie you can poke holes in it. But when it is an enjoyable watch, it is an enjoyable hang. Even if you are stuck with a kind of boring president for the first few minutes, that's just selling what you need to have sold on you for the whole rest of the movie to work. And as long as the rest of the movie works, hey, the movie worked and you had a good two hours. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think the movie works if you have a charismatic president. No, it doesn't. No. I, I enjoy it. I It makes me actually want to see the cycle of political movies of the era. It's been a long time since I've seen mm-hmm. Advice and Consent or The Best Man or put, put Dr. Strangelove in there. Very different kind of movie, yeah, but of totally. a similar yeah. The vein. Candidate. The Manchurian Candidate, of course. Dr. Strangelove started out as a straight drama. The, the yeah. Manchurian yeah. Candidate and also The Candidate. Oh, you're right. Oh, I haven't seen that. That's that's been a long time. And and and, and as I'll say that the, the uh, I, I enjoy the older character actors. Uh, at this time, mm-hmm. older character actresses were mostly in uh, fright wigs and doing horror movies. Older character actors got to be president, but you know, such is life in America. Yeah, in the far future of 1970. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, Phil, how did we do? We did good. We did good. Yeah. I'm glad that I'm always uh, glad when people like the movies. Uh, and in fact, even like some of them more than I did. Well, how about that? Yeah. Strange. Yes. I don't, I don't have any, uh, ill will toward you for choosing these movies. I enjoy good. both good, of them. Good, good, good. Um, I'll try, I'll try harder next time. I'll, yes. I'll, reserve, I'll reserve my right to have <laughs> ill will toward the gentleman from San Francisco. Yes, well, uh, <laughs> next, next time, next time. Uh, well, let, let me wrap it up then by thanking my panelists, David J. Lore. Thank you. Just, just take me home. Uh, um, Shelly Brisbane, thank you. And of course, people should listen to your podcast if they want to hear m- more about old movies. They they should. And if you want to see Edmund O'Brien when he wasn't sweaty, listen to our DOA episode. Can't remember the number, but it's okay. in the catalog. It was right. delightful. He's, he's a he's little still bit pretty sweaty, sweaty in that. In that. Yeah, a less, little, yeah. But less sweaty. Uh, uh. I didn't feel like he was. It's funny. He dies at the end of that movie. Spoiler alert. I didn't actually feel like he was going to die in that movie to the extent that I did in this movie. In this movie, I thought he was going to keel over at any moment. Yeah. Well, and when you call the movie Dead on Arrival, he pretty much <laughs> yeah. tips off what's going to happen. Yes. And uh. Moises Chuyan, thank you. Uh, is this EcomCon eleven oh six? I I got transferred. EcomCon. Uh, I, I, I was EcomCon. I was in intro to film language. And Philip Michaels, of course. Thank you for instigating Old Movie Club. You know, Jason, I always thought you were a great uh, podcast host, even with the rioting and unemployment. Mm. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. Remember, don't advocate for the violent overthrow of the United States government. That's our job. Unless you think you'd be better at it, I guess. We'll see you next time.